Justin. Okay, we'd like to uh, welcome anybody that sh shows up on the internet, whether we're going to be able to... Okay, so um, let me do an introduction here. Steve Boucher is uh, joining us from St. Catharines, Ontario. Um, I knew about this story for a couple of years. I'm doing a book on um, uh, aliens and the connection to music, rock music. I knew about this story and uh, happened to be in um, um, Bradford, Ontario. And Steve, who we have here tonight, stood up and told the story. And I immediately recognized the story as the one that I'd been looking for for a long time so um, yeah okay so Steve um, welcome and maybe sort of uh, tell us a little bit about uh, uh, who you are and how this uh, whole thing started okay well my name is Steve Boucher and I'm from St. Catharines Ontario and um, uh, how it all started was uh, uh, I started getting flashes of memory of uh, something that didn't really make any sense to me. It, uh, it seemed to involve uh, extraterrestrial beings. and So I, I've been interested in the subject uh, for a number of years. And I bought Bud Hopkins' book, Missing Time. And after I read that book, it, uh, it had triggered some memories in me and uh, well, one of the uh, fragments of memory that I had involved my dad and so I asked my dad uh, if he remembered this incident and I described it a little bit to him and he did remember it and so uh, we were both surprised because he thought it was a dream and uh, I thought maybe it was a, a dream as well but when we both remembered it uh, that seemed uh, pretty strange to me. So at the end of Bud Hopkins' book, he has uh, he had a little paragraph there that said, if you feel that you may have had an incident similar to uh, uh, the ones described in this book, uh, to please write to me, and uh, if you want to research it, I'll put you in touch with a, a researcher in your area that can uh, can help you. So I wrote to him. And I wasn't really expecting much, but uh, a couple of weeks later, he uh, he phoned my parents' house, got my mother on the phone, and um, uh, she uh, he asked her if I would uh, be able to come to New York City. He had a studio in Manhattan where he does his artwork, and... Uh, so uh, anyway, she put me on the phone, and I, I was really surprised that he actually called me from New York. And so um, uh, he asked if I had any holiday time coming up, and I said, yeah, I have a week of holidays coming up, and I was going to go up north, but uh, I can change my plan and come to New York. And so he said, okay. So uh, he arranged for me to take this uh, thing called the sky bus and it's 
generally for businessmen. It's a small uh, jet that uh, businessmen use, and the rate is cheaper than going for a regular flight. Uh, so I took the Sky Bus, and his friend Ted Blocher met me at the airport and took me to Bud's studio. And so uh, uh, he had arranged for me to have uh, three hypnosis sessions originally uh, with Dr. Aphrodite Clamar that did the sessions in his book. And um, so I went to her for two of those sessions, and Bud ended up doing the third one himself. And then uh, he sent me to a behavioral therapist in Manhattan as well, which uh, uh, she her job was to determine that I wasn't crazy or that I wasn't uh, trying to do it for attention or something like that, you know. And so she gave me a number of tests and uh, had a, a long conversation with me. And she gave me the Rorschach test, which is like the ink blots, you know. And uh, she gave me an IQ test. And she gave me uh, another test on uh, history, which I felt was kind of a little bit unfair because it was about American history, and I'm a Canadian, so, uh, but it turned out that I knew more about American history than I did about the Canadian history, and I was able to name a number of American presidents, and that was part of what the test was about, and so I guess I passed all the tests okay, and um, so anyway, I, I had the two sessions with Dr. Clamar, and one session with Bud, which revealed a wealth of information. Uh, apparently, uh, I found out that I was what they call a repeater case. And I'd had a number of uh, uh, abductions or visitations since I was a, a very small child. And I even uh, uncovered some memories of uh, uh, a scenario before I was born. Uh, that involved a, a gray entity. Um, yeah, that uh, I remembered uh, being on a high place, like a it looked like a mountain or a cliff of some sort, and this being was standing next to me, and I I knew him fairly well, like. I had a kind of respect for him like you would have for a police officer or a, a military officer. He had some kind of uh, official capacity, and um, uh, I believe his name was Rigel, and uh, he was telling me that I had to go down to Earth, and we were standing on this high place looking out into the sky, and I could see the Earth hanging there like a big beach ball. And uh, so anyway, uh, I, w I was arguing with him because I didn't want to go down there. And he said, why don't you want to go down there? And I said, well, because I've heard so many horrible things about Earth that I'm afraid to go. And so uh, uh, he continued to try to persuade me to go. And I said, what, what would happen if I refused? And he said, well, if you refuse, 
there's a lot worse places they could send you than Earth. And, uh, so I took that as, as a threat, direct threat, you know. And I felt like uh, my free will was being violated because he was basically telling me that I had to go. I had no choice. He said, it's been decreed by those higher up. And uh, so anyway, I continued to beg him not to send me down there. And uh, he said, well, he says, there's a there's a fellow that just came back from there. And uh, maybe if you talk to him, uh, it might alleviate some of your fears. So uh, I agreed to do this. And so I found myself uh, suddenly in a a white room with no windows and uh, it was very dimly lit in there and I saw this guy sitting in a chair in the middle of the floor and he was kind of hunched over and he didn't look uh, very happy so I went up to him and I uh, I said I understand you're from earth or you were you were just uh, uh, you just came from earth and he said, yes. And uh, I said, what was it like down there? I said, is it, uh, is it as bad as I, I've heard? And he said, well, it's good and it's bad. And so I said, uh, well, is it more good than bad or more bad than good? And he said, well, it's, it's a bit of both. And, uh, and so uh, I said, would... Would you go back if you uh, had the opportunity? And he says, well, I'm really not the right person to be asking this. And I said, why not? And he said, well, I have to go back. And I said, why? And he said, because I didn't complete my mission. And uh, when he said that, I realized that he had terminated his life before, uh, before he completed his mission. And uh, he committed suicide. So I backed away from him, and I considered myself done there, and then I suddenly appeared back next to this being again on, on the high place. And um, we were just staring out at, at the earth hanging there in space. And, and he said, uh, did he... Uh, did he alleviate your fears at all? And I said, well, not really. In fact, he just made me feel worse. And uh, so anyway, uh, he said, well, you have to go. And so I said, well, uh, if I go down there, will you come and check on me every now and then and make sure I'm okay? And he said, yes, I'll, I'll do that. And what I didn't realize that was that uh, when I asked him that and he agreed, I had entered into a soul contract. And so uh, he, he kept his word and he came and visited me uh, from time to time. And he was kind of the lead character in the, uh, the abductions. I hear a dog out there. <laughs>
on the computer. Oh. Oh, okay. Okay, so anyway, uh, uh, I uh, I asked the being how long I'd have to be down there, and he said, uh, not long. He said, maybe 60, 65 years. And when he said that, I said, 65 years? I said, I can't go down there that long. I can't be there that long. And he said, well, it's it's really not not that long, you know. And uh, so anyway, uh, uh, I finally ended up agreeing to go. And so he, he said that there's something that I'm going to tell you that may help you if you go down there. Uh, and he said, uh, he says, find the people who carry the teachings of a man named Jesus. And uh, he said, if you can find those people and uh, learn those teachings, when you come back here, you'll go to a far better place than you've ever been before, than you could ever imagine. And so uh, uh, I said, okay, I'll find uh, this Jesus. And he said, no, you won't find him because he's not there anymore. But find the people who carry his teachings and if you can learn those teachings when you come back here, uh, you'll go to a place that's far better than you could ever dream of. So what he meant by that uh, is up for debate. Like it, uh, I know that when I did come down here, I, at a certain time in my life, I went through a bout of Christianity. And um, I, uh, I found that a lot of the questions I had they couldn't answer. A lot of the information that I needed to know about UFOs they couldn't help me with. They basically demonized the whole phenomenon. And uh, But there are other ways of learning the teachings of Jesus. There's the, uh, the Essenes. Uh, they carried a, a, a certain number of his teachings. Uh, in the Nag Hammadi library, there's all kinds of uh, Gnostic information about the teachings of Jesus. So it may not necessarily have been Christianity that he was talking about. So anyway, uh, I agreed to come down here, and uh, so I, I came through some sort of a, a portal or a tunnel, and then I was uh, in a human body here on Earth, like a baby's body. And um, uh, for the longest time, I remembered that conversation I had with this being, Rigel. And later on, uh, when I became a Christian for a while there, I found this passage in the Bible that where the devil took Jesus up to a high place and showed him all the kingdoms of the earth and said, if you do an act of worship to me, I'll give this all to you. And when I read that, it uh, I thought of this high place 
And uh, by the size of the Earth uh, in space, uh, from the perspective that I saw it from, I tend to think that it was someplace on the moon, you know, maybe on the edge of a crater on the moon or something. But anyway, uh, it's just food for thought there. Let's go for the sake of the audience that's uh, on the internet. Let's skip to the 1971 and we'll come back later and cover uh, your early life. But let's go to 1971 so they can hear the main part of the story. What happens there? Okay. Um, I was uh, probably about 16 or 17, something like that. And uh, I was in a band. I played uh, woodwinds, uh, mostly recorders and wooden recorders. And I had a tenor, an alto, a soprano, and I was also the lead singer for a while. And so anyway, uh, there were three other people in the band. There was a a guitarist uh, that I'll call Tom, uh, a bass player that I'll call him Calvin, and uh, a drummer that I'll call Sam. And uh, the pseudonym that uh, I was given by Qforn was Jack T. And if you you can find the article uh, in an issue of Flying Saucer Review, it's published on the internet. And uh, anyway, uh, we were coming home from a, a party that we'd played a gig earlier in Niagara on the Lake at a hotel. And uh, after the gig, we were we were still all wide awake and so our drummer Sam said uh, he got invited to go on, go to this party and he said uh, they asked me if I'd bring the band and maybe play a little bit and he said uh, are you guys up for that or are you too tired and so we all agreed that yeah okay we could go and play one set maybe and it was in the winter time sometime around uh, near Christmas because I remember there being a Christmas tree at the party and so we went there and uh, we set up our equipment in the living room and I noticed that there was a pole lamp in the corner and uh, it was uh, like a spring-loaded pole lamp that uh, pressed against the ceiling to hold it in place and we took it down so we could get the drums in there and uh, so we we played a set and uh, uh, then we decided we were going to leave and uh, I saw this little bottle of uh, cream dement sitting there and I pinched it and put it in the bass drum and uh, so we left uh, we were leaving the party and loading up the, the van and uh, all of a sudden, this guy came up, up to us that uh, nobody knew. He was there at the party and kind of had long hair, and uh, he was around the same age as us. And he said, are you guys going to St. Catharines? And we said, yes. And he said, well, you mind if I uh, hitch a ride with you? And so I said, well, you have to talk to the guitarist because he's, he's driving. So he asked... Uh, the guitarist, Tom, uh, and he said, yes, we can take you to St. Catharines. So he got in the back of the van. And so there were uh, 
there were six of us actually because there were the four members of the band and then there was Anne Marie which was uh, at the time was the drummer's girlfriend and then there was this guy that uh, we were giving a ride to so we were coming back uh, from the party the party was in uh, Vineland I believe and uh, we went to get on the Queenie and the uh, uh, the entrance was closed so we decided to take the north service road down to the next uh, junction and get on the Queenie there and so we started uh, heading down uh, uh, down the service road and uh, the next junction was in Jordan and so we're driving along, and I'm sitting on the floor with Anne-Marie and uh, Calvin and this uh, stranger. And uh, Tom, the guitarist, is driving, and Sam, the drummer, is sitting in the passenger seat. And so uh, all of a sudden, along the road, uh, uh, Tom stops the van. And we said, why are you stopping? And he said, well, you better take a look over over the seat here because you're not going to believe what uh, if I tell you. So we looked over the seat and uh, ahead of us around uh, this restaurant that uh, it's had a number of different names, Admiral Birds, uh, Plain and Fancy. Uh, uh, I'm not really sure what it's called now, but it was closed and in the parking lot, uh, sort of across the service road was this uh, large saucer-shaped craft. And uh, it was sitting on the ground, and there was uh, lights from the bottom of it, like uh, little searchlights panning back and forth over the, over the pavement. And it had portholes all around the... Uh, uh, the extreme part of the perimeter and they appeared to be like recessed portholes so anyway we were a fair distance away from this thing and uh, Tom said what do you think it is and so I came up with a suggestion well maybe it was maybe it's a movie prop and maybe they're filming a movie or something and uh, so he said, well, why would it be all lit up like that in the middle of the night if it was a movie prop? And uh, we all kept staring at this thing. And finally, we, we agreed that we'd turn around and go back uh, the other way and maybe get the exit further down the other way and get onto the Queenie that way. So... Uh, uh, we were going to do that, and then we started moving towards thing instead of uh, uh, turning around. And I said to Tom, why aren't you turning around? And he said, well, I am. He said, look, and he's hauling the steering wheel around to the left to try to turn around, and nothing's happening. And we just keep moving toward this thing. So we're yelling, like, put on the brake. And he says, I am putting on the brake. And he's stamping on the brake, and nothing's happening. And we couldn't feel any of the, uh, uh, the surface bumps in the road or anything like that. It was like a smooth movement towards this thing. And we were moving toward it 
uh, pretty quick. Like we sped up and we were moving toward it really fast. And so uh, it was so scary that I was actually bracing for impact because I thought we, we might hit this thing. But instead, we uh, we got up to about uh, maybe 15, 20 feet away from it. And then we came to rest on the road and, and the engine wouldn't start, couldn't do anything, just sit there. And so uh, we were all kind of panicking at the time. And uh, so uh, Sam, the drummer, came up with a suggestion. He said, maybe if we all be really quiet and stay down, they'll leave us alone, you know. So we decided to do that, be really quiet and just stay down. And, and so I, I could hear... Tom and Sam in the front seat whispering, and Tom said, oh, no. And I said, what's going on? And Sam said, they're coming out. And I said, what do they look like? And he said, they're, they're just little guys. And uh, so they came over to the van, and we could hear them trying the doors, and we had the doors all locked, and we were just trying to remain really still and stay low. And at one point, I saw the, the side of one of the being's head go by the window. And it surprised me. And I, I said, did you see that? And everybody went, shh, shh, you know. And so I said, yeah, but did you see that? And Anne-Marie said, yes, I saw it. So then it came around. Uh, we felt that they were behind the van, like at the back of the van. And we're all sitting there, and I, I was thinking that if we may end up in a skirmish with these beings, and I didn't know what they were, so I started looking around for a weapon. And I grabbed the mic stand that was beside me, and I was ready to hit them with it if they got in. And uh, then a strange thing happened at that point. The guy that we had picked up at the party that none of us knew he just suddenly, he was sitting in the back corner, and he just suddenly reached over and opened the door. He opened the back door, and it flung open, and there was, uh, I could see three beings standing there, and they were grazed, and I was panicking, and I grabbed the mic stand, and uh, the one being came up into the van. I don't know if he climbed up or if he levitated or how he got in, but he came in through the back door, and uh, uh, he was standing there in the van, and we couldn't move. We were paralyzed. And then I heard him speaking to me in my head. I could hear him saying, we're sorry that we had to paralyze you because you were thinking thoughts of violence. And he said, I was concerned for my safety and the safety of my crew members. And so... Uh, he said, we're going to do some tests on some of you. And he says, uh, uh, after the tests, we can, we'll bring you back and you can go on your way. But we need to bore you for a, a little while to do these tests. And he said, so I'm going to select three volunteers. <laughs> like, like we're going to volunteer, you know. So <laughs> anyway, he said, I'm going to select three of you. 
and so I heard him look at somebody and said you and then he looked at uh, uh, at the bass player and he said and you and then he turned around and he looked at me and when he looked at me I looked down at the ground because uh, I didn't want to look at his eyes because that's how they communicate. I could hear, uh, when I looked at his eyes, I could hear him, and when I looked away, I couldn't hear him very well. So uh, anyway, I was just staring at the ground, and then it was getting really uncomfortable, and so all of a sudden I looked up at him, and as soon as my eyes met his, he said, and you. And so, uh, anyway, then he said, uh, uh, would you follow me, please? And he turned around, and he started to leave the van. And on his way out, his foot caught in the drum, the snare drum stand, and he knocked the snare drum over, and it rolled out the back of the, uh, the van onto the ground. And immediately, one of the beings picked it up and... So when I got out, uh, this being held it out to me, and he said, is this yours? And I said, uh, no. I said, and he said, who does it belong to? And I pointed to the drummer, Sam, and he gave me the dirtiest look. Why did you point to me, you know? like So anyway, uh, the leader, which I... This time, I think it was Rigel, uh, he said to the, one of the beings, he said, go and get him out. So this being went over to uh, Sam's door, and he uh, he got him out somehow, and he came around the back of the van with, with the being, and they handed him the drum and said, is this yours? And he said, yes. And he said, is it damaged? And he looked at it quickly, and he said, no, it's not damaged, it's okay. And he took it from the being and put it in the back of the van. And then I was standing there, and I was looking at this one being, and I was looking right into his face. He was like, you know, standing right in front of me. We were like about two feet apart. And I was thinking to myself, man, are you ever ugly? And uh, then he started to look away like he felt embarrassed. And then all of a sudden it occurred to me, did I think that about him or did he think that about me? Because it was like uh, our minds were connected and that statement came out, but I I wasn't sure if it was his thought or my thought. But anyway, uh, uh, so the leader called us all over and at this point Sam became one of us too uh, came along with us and he brought us uh, to the side of the van and lined us up in a line and he said uh, we're going on to the ship now and he said uh, we're using a different method of transportation than what you're used to and he said uh, uh, what I want you to do is face the back of the person in front of you and he said, I'll be in the front. One of my crew will be in the back. And he said, uh, we're all going to move together as a unit. 
And he said, when we do this, he says, don't look to the left or the right. Just look straight ahead at the person in front of you. And he said, and when we go onto the ship, don't touch the hull. And so I, uh, I wasn't very obedient. And uh, as soon as we started to move, I, I felt his lift off the ground, and we all started moving it together as one unit. And I could uh, see the back of the being's head that was leading the, the group. And I just turned my head to the left for a second, and immediately we stopped. When I faced straight ahead, we started going again. And I said, oh, is that how it works? And so then I looked to the right, and we stopped again. And they were very patient. They just waited until I looked forward again. And then when I looked forward, we started moving again. So once I'd satisfied my curiosity, I, I just went along with it after that. And we came around to these corrugated steps, metal steps. And uh, I thought we were going to walk up the steps, but instead we just went up straight as a, as a unit. And the drummer, Sam, was standing right in front of me, and I was looking at the back of his head. And when we went in, he banged his head on the, uh, uh, the top of the doorway. He was fairly tall, and their doorways are made for them, not for us, you know. And so, uh, anyway, he complained about it. But once we got inside, uh, we started going in, and then I looked down at the hull, and just uh, just for a, a second, I very lightly touched it with my ring finger of my left hand, just to see what it felt like as we were going in. And it felt warm. It felt like uh, like aluminum or something like that, you know. And then I found out that uh, a couple of weeks later, I ended up with the biggest darn planter's wart on that finger that I've ever had in my life. It was huge, and it took a long time to get rid of it, you know. So anyway, once we got inside the craft, uh, they immediately separated us, and there was one being for each person. And they, uh, they were telling us that, uh, they wanted us to go, and there were some benches there that sort of followed the contour of the ship, and they wanted us to go and sit down there and remove our clothing uh, for these tests. And they said, just pile your, your clothing in the corner uh, beside the bench. You'll be able to see it. Nobody's going to touch it. And I had my bag of recorders with me as well because... Uh, where I go, my recorders go with me, you know, and so I didn't want to leave them in the van. I brought them with me, and uh, so I put them down on top of my clothing, and uh, we were getting undressed, and somebody there had long underwear. I remember, uh, I remember that, and uh, so anyway, they, they took me, and they asked me to get on top of this gurney, it looked like a gurney. It was a metal uh, uh, metal bed of, or cot, and it had a, a mattress on it and a, a pillow kind of arrangement. And they wheeled me over to this one area, 
and um, they asked me uh, uh, to uh, just wait there for a minute, and they went and got some equipment, and the one the beings were communicating with each other. And when they weren't looking at me, I was thinking to myself, I need to get something from from the ship, some kind of an artifact or something, because uh, nobody's going to believe this. And so I noticed that uh, I was right next to uh, this uh, countertop unit that kind of followed the contour of the ship, and uh, it had drawers in it, and there were little knobs on the drawers. So I reached over and I grabbed one of the knobs and I started to unscrew it. And I took it off, and I thought, well, now what am I going to do with this thing? I don't have any pockets, you know. And I was wondering where I was going to hide it, you know. And so, anyway, I just kept it in my hand for the time being. And so then the beings, uh, they had another little metal tray thing with some instruments on it. And then the the leader came over to me, and he said, okay, uh, he said, we're ready to uh, do the test. And then all of a sudden he said, what have you got? And I said, what do you mean? He said, you took something. And he could see that in, in my mind. And so I, I knew that I'd been caught. So I opened my hand and I showed him the, the little knob from the, from the drawer. And he said, you can't keep that. And one of the other beings came over to him and said, why not let him keep it? What, what's it going to hurt? And he looked at the being and he said, no. He says, we're not supposed to let them keep anything. So he took it off me. And then he wheeled me over to, uh, uh, to this part of the ship that was closer to the center of it. And um, he picked up this instrument off the tray that looked uh, a bit to me like uh, the handpiece of a, a contemporary phone. And he brought it over and he said, I'm going to show you how this instrument works. He turned it on and he held it over his arm and the light from it was a green light that lit up his arm. And uh, everywhere that this green light fell on his arm, I could see uh, his skeletal structure underneath his skin. So it was some kind of an x-ray device or something. And so then he says, now I'm going to try it on you. And I said, does it hurt? He said, no, it doesn't hurt at all. He said, you might feel a little bit of a tingling. So he said, hold out your arm. And I held out my arm. And he took this thing and he shone it on my arm. But the strange thing about it is that when he shone it on my arm, I could not only see the skeleton bones underneath, but I could see the the muscle tissue, and I could see the uh, the veins and the arteries, and I could see them pulsing with the beat of my heart, and I could see everything. And I wondered why I couldn't see all that stuff when he put it on his arm. But anyway, uh, he said, uh, now, he says, we're going to use it to take a look inside your stomach. And he said, I need you to lay down. And so I laid down, and... Uh, there was at least two, maybe three beings were crowded around me, and they were shining this thing up on my stomach. And uh, it's like they were looking for something. 
and so anyway, uh, when they finished, the uh, uh, the leader told me, he said, sit up a bit, and he raised up the back of this uh, gurney thing, and uh, he showed me this thing on the wall that was like a uh, it was like a hypnodisc. That's the only way I can describe it. It was like a uh, like a helix on this disc, and it started spinning. And when it spun, it would draw you into the center of it, you know. And I was looking at this thing, and it bothered me. And I said, I, I don't want to look at that. And he said, no, it's important. He said, keep looking at it. And uh, I tried a couple of times to not to look at it, but he said, no, keep looking at it. It's very important. So I kept looking at this thing, and then all of a sudden I just blacked out. And when I awoke, uh, they'd done something to me. I don't know what it was, but they were rolling up the instruments in a cloth. And uh, uh, he said, "You can. we're going to take you back so you can put your clothes back on again. And all this time, uh, the drummer, Sam, had been arguing with this one being, you know, He's the guy that banged his head going in. And the being was trying to convince him to get his clothes off. And he said, no way, no way, you're not going to make me do that. And he stood up, he stood his ground. And after a while, the being finally gave up. And he actually patted him on the back and he said, I respect your decision. And so the rest of us went along with it. And so we were putting our clothes back on after. And uh, they came over and they said, well, now if you want to ask us any questions, now is the time to do it. So uh, a couple of the guys asked, uh, you know, typical questions like, where are you from? And and they, uh, they showed us a, a map on the wall and they said, do you know the stars at all? And they said, well, not really. And so, well, then it probably wouldn't do you any good for us to tell you where we came from. But he said, it's up in this area. And he pointed to some area on the map. And then uh, uh, somebody asked, do you have any bases on Earth? And he said, yes. As a matter of fact, there's one right out here. And he pointed to Lake Ontario. And so then it came around to my turn, and I'd been thinking to myself, what am I going to ask them? And I came up with a really good question. I said, uh, what is the true religion on earth? And it kind of took them aback, like they didn't expect that. And they sort of glanced at each other, and then they looked at me, and they said, why would you ask a question like that? And I said, well, because... Uh, you guys are obviously more advanced than we are technologically, and uh, you're probably more advanced socially and spiritually as well. And so I figured if anybody would know what the true religion on earth is, it would be you. And so he just kind of stared at me for a minute, and then he said, there is no true religion on earth. And he said, and that's the end of the questions. 
And I said, well, wait a minute. Wait, like, you can't just leave me hanging like that. Why, you know, why is there no true religion on earth? And he says, I'm sorry, but I'm afraid we've told you too much already. And so uh, that was the end of the question. So he wouldn't take any more. And so the uh, uh, we all lined up and started leaving the ship. And... Uh, uh, I was the last one to, to leave, and he he put his hand on my shoulder and he said, wait a minute. And so everybody left, and they all went back to the van, and I was stayed behind. And uh, so I don't know what happened at that point, but it was like uh, he still had some control over me uh, in hypnosis. And the next thing I remembered, I was standing in the parking lot, looking up at him in the doorway of the ship. And he was kind of silhouetted in the doorway because the, the light was coming from behind him. But I could see his, these big black eyes staring at me. And I felt uh, like he had given me some sort of a mission or something. And the last thing I remember him saying is that... Uh, I would be a big help to my my friends and my family in the future. And I couldn't remember anything else that he told me, but uh, then he said, uh, I, uh, my face was itching, and I went to, to scratch my face, and I found it was all wet. Like I'd been crying, and I didn't know what I'd been crying about. I was surprised, you know. So he said to me, uh, he said, are you okay? And I said, yeah. And he said, no, wasn't there something you wanted to show me? And I started thinking, and I thought, oh, yeah, I've got my recorders here. I wanted to show him the recorders. And so I, uh, I took the big one out and assembled it, and... Uh, handed it to him and he took a look at it he was kind of looking at it and turning it around and and then I took one of the small ones out uh, my soprano recorder and uh, uh, I showed him how to play it I played a little bit and then I handed it to him and when he took it from my hand I, I held a little resistance to see if if I could feel him pulling it out of my hand, and I did, I felt him pulling it out of my hand. I, I did that because I wasn't sure if he was a spirit or at the time. And uh, So anyway, after I showed him how I, I played it, he took it and he did something really strange with it. He held it up to his nose instead of his mouth, and he, he blew into it, and he got a couple of notes out of it. And uh, I was really surprised. That I wondered, why would he put it up to his nose? And I got my answer several years later when I read uh, an, uh, a report of an alien autopsy done by uh, Leonard Stringfield. And in the report, it said that their mouth is only a pocket. 
it only goes back so far. Uh, it doesn't go down the road. It just goes like a little pocket. And they have uh, one organ that does the job of the heart and the lungs uh, together. And I guess the way the oxygen comes in is through the nose. And so they, they don't have the ability to blow out through their mouth. So anyway, uh, I asked him if he'd like to keep that little recorder as a souvenir. And so he said to me, what's a souvenir? And I said, oh, it's uh, uh, something to remember me by. And he said, yes, that would be fine. And so he took it. And then I was I started thinking to myself, you know, hope I can find another one of those. Because uh, I, I like that particular brand. And so all of a sudden, he says, would you like it back? And, he, <laughs> and I said, no, no, I forgot that he was reading my mind. I said, no, you keep it. It's I want you to have it. And he said, you're sure? And I said, yes. And he said, okay. And he said, would you like me to take you back to uh, to your vehicle? And I said, no, that's okay. I'll, I'll walk back. Okay, and I said, uh, "Am I going to see you again?" And he said, "Yes." Uh, he said, "You will." But there was a part that I missed where I saw him silhouetted in the doorway of the ship, and uh, I felt this tremendous love coming from him, like really strong love. It was—I've uh, never felt a love like that before. And uh, in retrospect, I find that kind of strange coming from a gray, because a lot of people say that they have no emotions, but yet I felt this very strong from it. So when I went back to, to the van, I got in through the back door with my bag of recorders, and everybody was sitting in there, and it was like they were all in a state of suspended animation or something. They were just sitting completely still. And as soon as I got in, they all came to life and they started talking again. And uh, Sam had made this agreement with Tom. And he said, uh, he says, we've got to be in agreement on this, that we're not going to tell anybody what happened to us. And I said, no. I said, people need to know about this. And he said, no. He says, we're not going to tell anybody about it. And he says, if you tell anybody, we'll just deny it, and you'll look like an idiot. And I was really upset because, uh, you know, something incredible had happened to us, and they didn't want to talk about it. They didn't want to discuss it. They didn't want to tell anybody, and I was really upset about it. So uh, I never agreed to... Everybody else agreed but me. And so we sat there and we watched the ship lift off the ground. And it started heading out toward Lake Ontario. But it didn't zoom off really fast. It, it just kind of coasted slowly. And we watched it. Uh, it was like a bright light. And it was getting smaller and smaller as it got further away. And on the way home... And we left, we went home, and uh, 
I don't remember the uh, the stranger being in the van after that. So uh, somewhere along the line, I think he disappeared, and uh, suspect that he might have been planted on us uh, uh, to for specifically for the purpose of opening the door to give them access. So anyway, uh, all the way home, I kept hearing in my head, you're going to forget, you're going to forget everything. And I was arguing with this voice in my head saying, no, I refuse to forget. I'm not going to forget. And I kept hearing this voice all the way home telling me I was going to forget. When I finally got home, I think it was somewhere around four in the morning. I let myself in. My parents were asleep. And I went in the kitchen and I got a piece of paper and a pen and I started writing down everything in point form that I could remember about the incident. And then I took that piece of paper, I put it in my dresser drawer and I went to bed. And uh, after, uh, in the next morning that paper was gone and I never found it again until many years later. So, so that's, uh, that's my story basically, but there's a lot more happened to me as well. Well, it's exactly what I remember you telling it. And, uh, next time you do an interview, do it the way you do now with, uh, up close. It's, it's, uh, it's too bad we don't have the video. It's, it really looks good with you up close. Um, so you remember all this through regression, through Bud, right? And Bud was the one of the premier people working on alien abductions in the 80s and 90s, right? Um, well, it came out, I'm not sure if it was during the session I had with Bud or one of the ones with Aphrodite Clamar, but uh, it was one of those sessions, and we recorded them on cassette at the time, and... Uh, uh, the cassettes mysteriously disappeared, but I, uh, I discovered that I had transcribed two of the cassettes, and I wrote the story down, uh, and I forgot that I'd transcribed those cassettes, but I still have it in my own handwriting uh, uh, of the, uh, the entire incident. And when I read it over, I found that I've got a lot more details now than I did when I wrote it down. It was just basic uh, when I'd written it down, but uh, since then, a lot more details have surfaced from my memory. You know, just little things like uh, the drummer banging his head on the doorway going in and stuff like that, you know. Okay, how many regressions have you had? Do you, do you you had some when you came back to Canada, right? In the recent years? Yeah, uh, Bud uh, said he couldn't keep me any longer, uh, and he said, uh, if you want to continue researching this, he said, look for an organization called MUFON in St. Catharines, and uh, get in touch with them, and they'll put you in touch with uh, another. Uh, hypnotic regressionist that can help you 
And so when I came back, I went to uh, a UFO symposium in Toronto. And uh, while I was there, I saw uh, J. Allen Hynek. I wish I had gone up and shook hands with him, but uh, I never got to, to do that. But I saw him, and he was walking along with uh, a couple of guys. And, and I also saw, I think, William Moore was there, too. And um, I went into... Uh, uh, a workshop there in one of the classrooms and I told the experience I just told you about and then I had to go I couldn't stay uh, because my parents had driven me up there and they were my ride and I was past the time I was supposed to meet them so I made a quick exit after I told my story and uh, but while I was there I met these guys that I thought were members of MUFON and uh, they, uh, they turned out to be from QFORN, the Canadian UFO Research Network. And uh, they're no longer in existence anymore. <coughs> they, uh, uh, they closed, uh, I'm not sure when, but uh, they uh, listened to my story and they wanted to continue the research with it. And they seemed like a legitimate organization, so I went along with it and... Uh, uh, they did. They took me to a lady in Toronto called uh, Dr. Susan Shulman, who was a, a hypnotist, but she had never done anything like this before. She uh, she'd only done people who were quitting smoking or trying to lose weight, you know, that kind of thing. And but it caught her interest when uh, the guys started to talk to her and. They said, would you be willing to try it? And she said, okay. So uh, uh, she tried it, but she didn't really know what questions to ask me or, you know, uh, how to proceed. So uh, the, the one guy from QFORN, uh, Harry Tokars, he asked her to, uh, could she call Dr. Leo Sprinkle at the University of Wyoming? because he was uh, an expert in hypnotic regression, uh, especially with UFO cases. And so she called him right there, and we were all sitting in her office while she was talking to him on the phone, and he basically walked her through it over the phone, and she said, okay, thanks, and she hung up, and then we proceeded with, uh, with the sessions, and I'm not sure exactly how many she did on me, but I think there was at least four. And uh, during the time when uh, she was doing these sessions, uh, at one point I started channeling an entity in one of the sessions. And uh, so the guys from QFORN were asking this entity questions, and uh, he was answering and uh, anyway, uh, I couldn't tell you. I don't know, but because um, I don't even remember what what was said all that well. Oh. And anyway, um, 
during the time that they were investigating my case, started having uh, problems like they had a, a whole string of bad luck was happening to all of them. Uh, a lot of things like losing money, uh, large amounts of money. The hypnotist, Dr. Shulman, she went to Las Vegas with her boyfriend and lost a, a big amount of money gambling. And her and her boyfriend broke up. And, and she wouldn't answer any of Q-Forn's calls after that. They were trying to get through to her, and she wouldn't answer any of the calls. So, um, And we were hearing, uh, they were hearing clicks on the phone, and uh, uh, the one uh, guy's girlfriend, uh, the phone rang, and she picked it up. And uh, there was like a mechanical voice on the other end of it that said, you and them have to stop what you're doing. And uh, then it hung up and she was just had the phone to her ear and her mouth was hanging open. And Harry said, what was it? What happened? And she told him. And uh, so I think we were having some men in black interference or something. I never actually saw any of these beings, but we had some, definitely there was something messing with the phones and uh, uh, causing chaos in their lives. Wow. Um, there's a question, we got a few questions here. Um, yeah. One of the questions yeah. is about the mission. Do you recall the mission or what, what do you are here to do because a lot of experiences talk about the mission. Yeah. yeah. Um, um, I, uh, I still don't know to this day exactly what the mission was. He gave me some kind of a mission. I know it, uh, it really touched me because uh, it had me crying. And uh, I know it's something that I'm supposed to do in the future but I don't know what it is. Oh. Um, you, you, we talked about this um, in emails in the last couple of weeks about art. Do you think there's a connection between your artistic talents, because you are very artistic, and this incident, or do you think it's just uh, part of your agreement coming into Earth that you have these skills of being able to draw very well? Well, um, I read some of the uh, cases that you uh, posted, and it seems that a lot of them got these abilities after they had incidents with the uh, beings. Uh, with me, they go back to when I was a very small child, so I can't make that claim. I've always been good in art and music. What about what about psychic type stuff? Have you had anything that's that's weird since the incident where, like, have you had the poltergeist type stuff or the uh, ability to see the future or that kind of stuff that people report? Um, I found that my my psychic psychic abilities have increased um, recently. I don't I don't know if it's because of the the shift that we're going through or, or whatever, but uh, I took a mediumship class and I found that I was actually pretty good at it. And uh, 
I was good at the psychic aspect of it as well. And um, uh, I I left the, the class. Uh, I went there for maybe uh, a dozen weeks or so, uh, once a week. And then I left the class because the, the medium that was teaching it suddenly came out with this... Uh, she said she had a new guide and this guide was telling her that there's no such thing as reincarnation and I found that really strange like how can you be a medium and not believe in reincarnation like that just doesn't make sense to me so uh, for me that was a deal breaker and so I left her class but I'm going to be starting a new one uh, actually uh, on Monday Monday evening, I'm starting a new class with uh, another medium that I've, I've known for a little while. I've met her several times at psychic fairs and things like that. And I've also taken a, a course in the tarot, so I can read tarot cards. Uh, and I've been getting more interested in this kind of stuff recently. I never really had much of an interest in it before, especially around the time when I was a Christian, because to them this is all demonic uh, stuff, you know. And uh, so I never bothered with it much then. But okay, uh, yeah. Uh, why why did you come forward in uh, Bradford? Have you been telling the story, or did you have some sort of inspiration that you should sort of go public with your story? Because as we as we mentioned, it's this is like 20 years ago your story appeared in Flying Saucer Review and I've posted it in the discussion group of the meetup where this group here, it's in the discussion group, people can actually read the article, it was posted many years ago. I'm just wondering about uh, why you came forward now and whether anything has changed in your life since you came forward. Yeah, uh, well, back when this happened to me, uh, I didn't want to reveal my my real name, so I kept my identity private. QForn gave me the uh, pseudonym Jack T. So when you read the article, uh, you'll know who I am. <laughs> but uh, the reason I decided to come forward with it now is because there's so many things happening to the earth right now, so many changes, and... Uh, uh, with these uh, different energies and it seems like the old paradigm is falling apart and a new one is uh, developing on a different level and so I thought if I'm ever going to go public with this story now is the time to do it because I might not get another chance you know if there's a nuclear war or something and you know and I felt that this story needs to be told and uh, the incidents appear to have stopped around 1976 but I've been remembering a lot more over the years uh, more detail about them and uh, uh, so I felt that the story needs to be retold again with this new information that I've been remembering and there was one incident that hasn't been covered at all and it's almost like a almost like a sequel to the 
the incident I had with the band. And, uh, <laughs> well, it's, it's a bit of a long story. It's kind of like the incident with the van that's uh, about that long. Uh, but basically, in the incident with the band in the, in the van, uh, they abducted the band. In the second incident that we had, they abducted our audience. Um, basically, what happened is we had, we had a gig at Brock University, and uh, we were we were supposed to play in the Brock Pub. So we went there to play, and um, uh, we ended up playing for an empty house. There was no audience there. I'm skipping a lot of parts, but. Uh, uh, we had an encounter with the beings when we got there, and they separated us. It seems to be a standard protocol for them to separate us so that there's only one for each person. And they discovered that we were there for a purpose because we were playing at the, at the uh, bar. And so they said, oh, well, uh, they're going to miss them. So we have to let them go because they'll be missed. And so they let us go and we went to play, but they told us we'd forget. We forgot about it almost immediately. We went into the bar and we set up our stuff and we, we played. Uh, and it was a busy, what was usually a very busy night. And this night, nobody had showed up at all. There was, we were basically just playing for the staff. And they couldn't figure it out. They said, this is usually a really busy night. Uh, and it's just packed with people. And there's nobody here. They said, this has never happened before. So after the gig, uh, the guitarist, uh, he gave me his keys. And he said, can you go to the van and get my... Uh, he had this little dolly that he had wheels on it. And you could pull it. And he was going to load all the equipment on the dolly to take it back to the van. So I said, okay. So I left and I went to get the, the dolly. When I went back into the university, uh, I noticed that there was some, some sort of activity going on down the hallway. And uh, so I walked down the hallway and I... I was really surprised. I saw, like, there must have been about uh, 100 to 150 people or so all lined up along the lockers down the one hallway. And they were just standing there. So I went over and uh, I used the bathroom. And then I came out. And they were still standing there. And I asked somebody there, I said, what are you guys all standing around here for? And they said, because they told us to told us not to leave, to just stand here and wait. And I said, well, what are you waiting for? And I said, I don't know. But we were just told to stand here and wait. And it was like they were, they were all under some mind control or something. And So anyway, uh, I said, well, I can't stand and wait with you. I've got to go. And uh, so I turned around and I started to leave and 
uh, a guy came up to me and stopped me. And he said, you can't leave. He says, you have to stand in the line with all the others like you were told. And I said, no. I said, I got, I'm, I got to go and get the gurney thing out of the, or the dolly out of the, the van for the guitarist so he can load all the equipment on there. And I said, I have to go. I've got to go now. And he said, no, you can't leave. And I said, look, I've got to go. And he said, well, he said, come with me. He says, I'll see if they can take you now. And he took me ahead of all these people that were lined up. He took me outside. There was a set of doors there um, across from the hallway. And he took me outside. And there was snow all over the ground. And I noticed all these footprints, like people had been walking the same route. All these footprints were in the snow. And uh, so we were following this trail of footprints. And at that point, uh, when we came around the corner, there was a, a large saucer-shaped craft again. It was sitting on the ground behind the university, kind of hidden by this wall. So uh, anyway, this guy took me up to the doorway, and there was uh, a woman standing in the doorway. And he said, can you take this guy now? And she said, no. She said, we got way too many as it is. We're overcrowded. And she said, you'll have to go and wait like everybody else. And I said, I can't wait. And he said, he can't wait. He's got to be go now. And she said, well, I can't take him now. So he said, well, what do you want me to do then? And he, uh, she said, well, where has he got to go? Take him where he has to go and come back. So he took me down the road toward the pub, like the Brock pub. And uh, as we were walking there, I looked at him, and he, he was starting to look more and more like a gray as I was looking at him. Then uh, I said, these guys are going to wonder where the heck I got to, because they sent me to get the, the dolly for the equipment and I've been gone a long time and I said I, I don't know what they're going to they're going to be mad when they see me they're going to give me hell and and uh, so anyway as we were going down the road I could see the van there and the doors were open on it and they were piling the equipment in and uh, so anyway I said there they are I said can you come with me and explain why I'm late getting back and he said no I can't do that he says I have to go back they need me and I said well can you at least stand here stand over by the fence there and so I can point to you and say there's the guy that held me up that's the reason why I'm late getting back and he said okay I'll, I'll stand there for a minute or so and then he says then I've got to go so I walked up to him and uh, they called me Boucher. That was my nickname. And he said, Boucher, where the hell were you? He said, we've been looking all over for you. And uh, uh, Sam said, it's a good thing Tom had another set of keys to get into the van. Otherwise, we would have been in a real mess, you know. But he had a, a hidden key case with an extra key. So anyway, uh, I pointed to this guy over by the fence and I said, 
I was with that guy there. And they said, what guy? And I could see him. Plain as day. And I said, that guy, the guy standing there beside the fence. And they said, there's nobody there. And I said, there is. I said, can't you see him? And uh, they couldn't see him. And so uh, anyway, uh, then we got we got into the van and everybody was mad at me. They, they uh, thought that I had uh, done something really stupid and uh, they were all mad at me. They wouldn't talk to me. And so anyway, uh, I ended up going home. But uh, I've skipped a, a couple of parts. Because when we first uh, came into the uh, into the uh, university, I could see way down at the end of the hall where we were going. Uh, there's a set of doors there that lead out to the pub, and we were headed down that way. And I could see these these greys, a couple of greys walking around. And when they saw us coming, the one opened one of the doors of, of a, a classroom and walked into it. And the door closed, and the other one went around the corner. So uh, uh, when we got there, I said to them, I said, I'm going to open the door of that classroom and take a look in there and see if I can see this, this guy. As I pointed them out, I said, look, I said, those, those beings aren't human. And uh, they just kind of passed it off. They didn't really say much about it. And. So when I got up there, I opened the door of the classroom, and it was pitch black in there. I couldn't see anything, and I wasn't going to go in uh, to find out, so I closed the door. As soon as I went around the corner, there was three of them, and they grabbed us right away and separated us from each other. And uh, I noticed that one of them, there was like a concession stand that uh, usually it's closed, but the, the door... Uh, the door of the concession stand was up and the light was on and there was a gray being standing behind it, behind the counter on it. And uh, I saw that, but then this one being uh, took me aside and they took Anne-Marie aside and they had her against this window and and they had us all separated and they, they were trying to uh, find out what we were doing there and why we were, where we were going. And we told them that we're the band that's playing in this pub and we have to get there because they're expecting us and we're being paid for it. We have to work. And so then they said, uh, they're going to miss, they're going to be missed, so we have to let them go. And so they told us all that, uh, to go out the door. And as soon as we go out the door, we're going to immediately forget. And sure enough, as soon as we got out that door, we all forgot. We walked over to the pub, and there's this uh, uh, stair, uh, stairway outside the pub. It's like a, a stairwell, sort of, but an external one. And we have to go up the stairs to get to the pub. So we went up the stairs, and we were banging on the pub door, and nobody was answering. And we were standing outside, and it was cold. And I just happened to glance over the railing. And I see one of the beings uh, moving below the, uh, on the ground, moving toward the road where the, uh, where the ship was parked. And when I saw him, 
I brought it to Anne Marie's attention. I said, look, I said, there's a being, an alien down there. And she looked and she said, oh, yeah. She says, and the other guys were saying, what are you talking about? And she says, there was, there was a guy down there, an alien. And uh, anyway, he just disappeared. And so we didn't think anything more of it after that. And then finally the guy came and opened the pub and let us in. So that's that's the whole story of what happened there. I've always well, the bass player has uh, disappeared, and somebody told me that he died. But uh, the uh, the drummer is still around, and the guitarist is still around. The drummer doesn't play drums anymore. The guitarist is still playing, but uh, I can't reveal their names because uh, I don't want to get them involved in this because uh, they don't want to remember, you know. Well, when... When QFORN investigated the case, they managed to talk the uh, guitarist into undergoing a hypnosis session to find out what he remembered. But uh, during the session, uh, he didn't, uh, they couldn't get him to, to remember that, that spot. Like he, he didn't want to remember, he was blocking it, you know. But uh, Anne-Marie, who was the drummer's girlfriend, uh, later married the guitarist. She became his wife. And so she was there when he had the hypnosis session. And she remembered uh, some parts of it. She remembered me saying, did you see that? And pointing at the window. And she remembered that part. So... Uh, the guitarist, uh, either he he couldn't be put under hypnosis or he didn't want to remember, but it was unproductive. The drummer didn't want anything to do with it. He was very resistant. He was always res resistant to the whole thing. He wouldn't cooperate with them when they tried to get him to take his clothes off. And so, uh, uh, you know, he didn't want anything to do with it. Why, why do you think, um, what do you think your help is about? The sort of thing you're going to help people. Have you been able to sort that out, what that might mean? Not really. I've read a lot of uh, uh, Dolores Cannon's books uh, since then. And um, I found out that a lot of people have incarnated at this particular time that have come from all different planets and uh, different places out in space. And a lot of them have been uh, given missions before they came here. They were like soul contracts. And uh, they were born already having this mission. But I wasn't given a mission before I came here. And that's why they gave it to me 
uh, during the incident with the band. And I found out the reason for that because uh, just uh, uh, last month I underwent uh, another hypnosis session. And it was a, a QHHT session, a quantum healing hypnosis technique. And it was done at uh, many mansions in, in Hamilton by uh, a lady named Audra. And she has a, a business. You can find it on Facebook called One Soul Awakening. And she did this session on me. And during the session, I found out that... Uh, I'd been tricked into coming here. I wasn't supposed to come here. It wasn't uh, what was originally intended to be. My journey was supposed to be something else. I wasn't supposed to come to Earth, but I got tricked into it and conned into it. And once you agree, you're in. You know, if I had uh, stood my ground with that. Uh, being named Rigel and said no I'm not going and that's all there is to it then uh, they can't force you to do that you have to agree to it it has to be your will even if it isn't your will if you agree it's considered to be uh, your will and they tricked me into it so I found out during that session that uh, since I was already here and I had come in without a mission, they figured, well, most people are on Earth now to achieve this particular mission where they're supposed to help people ascend or, you know, to help mankind. So I believe that's what the mission was that they gave me during the van incident. Okay, uh, you and I have discussed uh, this environmental thing, and I mentioned the people on this on the ship seeing the screen, and I think you mentioned the fact that you've seen it. Uh, this environmental message was given to you in dreams. Is that true? And maybe you can talk about uh, your dreams. Have you gotten anything through dreams? Are they interacting with you through your dreams? I have had uh, dreams involving uh, aliens and UFOs. Uh, I don't know if they're relevant to uh, whatever this mission was that they gave me, but I have had dreams involving ships. When I've looked up in the sky in my dream and I've seen ships up there, and uh, there was one dream I had where I was on some other planet and I was talking to one of these beings. Uh, so I, I have had dreams involving them, but uh, I'm still unclear about what the mission is. I think that it's uh, basically the same mission as uh, everybody else that incarnated here uh, to help mankind, to help people ascend, to uh, awaken them, you know, that kind of thing, because that certainly seems to be the area that I'm headed. It's where my 
biggest interest lies. And and the environmental thing, you wrote a song in the 1970s. It was never published, but you you did write one on some sort of environmental message in the 70s, right? I did yeah. And um, back then, I uh, I read a book by Emanuel Velikovsky called "Worlds in Collision," and um, I guess I found it really interesting. It resonated with me. And I think uh, part of that had sort of triggered uh, portions of the memory of what my mission is. I don't know. But it got me interested in this stuff. And I've always kind of felt that, uh, you know, that man is is destroying the earth, that they've messed everything up and and uh, I've always been kind of a, a light worker if you want to call it that, I don't know uh, even when I was a teenager, you know I, some threw something on the ground, I'd pick it up, put it in the garbage can and scold them for it, you know because <laughs> I was always kind of uh, for the en- environment and uh, interested in that. Oh, beautiful. Okay, I know you've got another interview coming up, so I'm going to give you the last question, which is, oh, here comes somebody with a question. Somebody's running up with a question here. Um, let me do this one, and then we're going to give you the last question. Uh, did he ever find out about what religion is not um, is not found on earth? Did you ever get any resolution about the, the image, the religion question that you were asking? in your subsequent regressions? Uh, Not really, but what happened was uh, uh, there's a friend of mine, a lady friend that uh, goes to events with me and stuff, and she's a Christian. And so she said to me, uh, after I told her about my story, and, and she said, well, if they told you that, why on earth would you ever leave Christianity? And I said, well, because I felt that I've outgrown it. And I don't think they ever expected me to get this far. Oh, so, wow. Yeah. yeah. But I um, learned. Uh, uh, go ahead. Uh, yeah. Uh, the You gave the musical instrument to this, a, this alien. Did you do you have any recollection of seeing him after that? Um, or how do you know it ended in seventy six? Because that was, uh, because that was uh, when the the last, the last uh, abduction occurred that I remember. And as far as I know, uh, None have occurred after that, but there could still be some in my subconscious that just hasn't surfaced yet. But uh, we happened with different people. I had uh, a couple of incidents happened with my dad. Uh, another incident happened with uh, with my first wife when I was dating her. And um, so there are other people that have been involved. 
I wish there were people that could substantiate my story. That's the thing I regret the most is that, you know, the guys in the band don't want anything to do with it. They don't want to uh, take it any further. They just don't want to talk about it. I, well, I'm going to do what I can to make sure your story very public, that the message gets out, and I'll back up, because I've heard you tell the story a number of times, and plus the article sort of verifies that this the same story is being told. Uh, one question just sort of popped into my mind that I always like to ask experiencers. Uh, you met with this alien before you were born. You met with him a number of times, and I always want to ask experiencers, did the alien ever get any older, or did he always look the same? You know, when I try to imagine him, uh, I have trouble imagining what he looks like. I, I've seen uh, brief flashes of memory about his face. Like I remember his face in in the van when he came into the van, and his eyes weren't completely black when he came in the van. They uh, they looked more like human eyes, but a lot bigger and he had large pupils I believe they were blue and uh, there were some whites of his eyes around the pupil so I think uh, uh, from what I've learned from studying them the uh, the black eyes are actually some kind of a, like a contact lens that keeps their eyes protected from the light because our light is too bright for them. So they don't need the contacts. They take them off or they disappear or something. You know. Once again, I really appreciate you doing this for us. Um, fascinating story. My final question for you, and then you can go get ready for your other interview. Um, looking back, You've had years and years to think about this, and you've done a lot of reading in ufology. You've seen the the good versus the bad alien, all this sort of stuff. So the question is, if you had to do it over, would you do it again? And what message would you have for uh, the group here in Winnipeg? You're talking to maybe 35 people here, uh, who in a lot of their experiences, they've been down sort of a road, not maybe as dramatic as yours, but they've got experiences. So. What message would you have for them, and is this good or bad? What, what do you, how do you sum this whole? Well, uh, there were two questions there. What was the first one again? Well, is it is it a is it a good or a bad okay. thing? Looking at it through your whole lifetime, and what's the the ultimate message? You've got a chance to give this message to a whole group of people in another city. What's the main message you want to leave? That that you think this all means? What's this all about? Okay. In regard to whether it's a good or a bad uh, thing, uh, they treated me fine. They they never uh, hurt me or did anything uh, uh, to uh, scare me. They uh, they made me feel at ease. They were actually polite. Uh, you know, when the, the one being put that thing on my arm, he answered my questions, and he didn't have to show me how it worked beforehand, but he did that to alleviate any fear I might have of it. And uh, uh, so I think when people claim they have bad experiences, 
I think it's more a, a perception based on what they believe uh, than the actual incident itself. Like uh, two of the ladies I met in New York, Bud Hopkins introduced me to, uh, the one girl said when she was a little girl, she was playing with them. She thought they were elves, you know. And then I met this guy there. The guy had a completely different story. He said uh, it scared him so bad that when they found him, he was walking along this road, a dirt road. His clothes were all buttoned wrong. He'd peed himself, and he was just uh, mumbling stuff, and the police picked him up. And he was talking crazy, and uh, uh, he was completely terrified. He said, I'd never want to have anything like that happen to me again. But myself and, and these girls, like, we, we found it to be, uh, our experiences to be positive. And yes, I would uh, do it again. If I had the opportunity, uh, more questions I'd like to ask them. And I have a lot more experience now, having read uh, many of the cases of other abductees. And so I know how to behave when I'm with them, if they give me the, the chance, you know. But I don't know if I'll ever get that opportunity again. You know, I'm uh, getting up in years now, and maybe I wouldn't be as useful to them as I was when I was younger. I don't know. Uh, uh, then uh, as a, a parting message I would say if you've had experiences uh, and you're worried about uh, learning about them or finding out what happened uh, worried about maybe going under hypnosis I would strongly recommend that you do it because it totally changed my life once I Learned all this stuff. Uh, uh, it it completely changed my, my life, and I'm glad. I'm very happy that I found out all this stuff because if I hadn't have gone under hypnosis, all this stuff could have remained buried in my in mind for years, and I might never know what what happened. So, if you're apprehensive about having hypnosis done, I would highly recommend that you do it. Because uh, uh, sometimes things like that, if they're buried in your subconscious, they can cause you to have irrational fears of things that you don't understand. And once it comes out, those fears disappear. Like I used to have a really bad fear of the dark when I was younger. I was terrified of the dark. I always slept with a nightlight on and stuff like that. When after I recalled all these experiences, I just lost my fear of the dark. Now I sleep in almost pitch darkness, you know, just the whatever light comes in through the window. So uh, there are good things that can come from it. Okay. Uh, now, in, I said there was last question I liked. Uh, in, in, every, in every group, you have people who aren't well. You underwent this quantum healing. Do you, do you, yes, do you, do you think this helped you? Do you think this is a valid thing for somebody who has some 
problem, health problem, life-threatening problem? Yes, it's a, it's a technique that was developed by Dolores Cannon. And uh, there's three parts to the, the session. The first one is uh, when she puts you under, uh, uh, she would have you recall uh, a previous lifetime. And she leaves it totally open to you to uh, choose whatever lifetime you want to experience. Then uh, after that session, then the second part is where she contacts the subconscious directly and the conscious mind steps us. And uh, once she contacts the subconscious directly, she'll ask it, why did you show this person that particular incarnation? What, uh, what do you want them to learn from that? And uh, so then uh, the subconscious will explain why, why you had that particular incarnation, why you remembered that particular one. And then the third part of it is uh, the healing part, where she'll ask the subconscious to uh, scan the person's body for health issues or defects or problems. And, uh, and a lot of times uh, they'll find problems and they'll heal them right there on the spot. Like, you, you know, uh, and they can heal almost anything, you know, any disease or whatever. But some particular ones that they won't heal are because you've agreed to have that illness before you were born. There's a, a reason why you chose to experience that, whether it be to pay off uh, karma or... Uh, uh, usually that's what it is. Or um, There's many times where it's uh, a pain in the shoulder. could be like from a previous lifetime where you were... Uh, a soldier and you got bayoneted in the shoulder or something like that uh, there's reasons why and her daughter Julia Cannon has written a book called Soul Speak and it goes into a lot of depth about uh, why people experience certain illnesses and uh, uh, problems uh, health problems and what those what they mean because your body's actually trying to explain something your subconscious is trying to give you a message through that injury or illness and uh, I found it it's a very good book to use as a reference book but anyway uh, that's about it Steve I really appreciate it I didn't realize you had the second part of the story uh, anything I can do for you at any point if you need my help, I'm here. I just really appreciate you coming here, and I'm sure the people just loved it. And I'm going to do whatever I can to make sure that, that as many people as possible hear your story. I think it's very important, and it has messages for everybody. So thanks a lot for coming. And uh, and we'll, we'll let you get to your next interview. Okay, good night. Okay, Take good care. Night. Good night. Thank you.